0: Take your Bibles this evening to James chapter number 4, if you will. We have spent six weeks so far running through our series on uh, running our race with the pace of grace. Trying to make sure that we uh, are sustained daily by grace from God. Because it's so easy to get spiritually burnt out when we do this Christian life thing in our own power. And so the reason that we're taking a look at what grace is, the definition of it, the meaning of it, and its application... It's so that we can know how to utilize it in daily life. As we've said several times, grace was not just a one-time application at the commencement of our Christian life. It was not just so that we could get saved. It was so that we could act like we are saved. And so grace is a great helper. in fact, that's what we studied last week, the helper of grace. And so James chapter 4 this week... We are now week seven of this a series, have a couple weeks to go. Uh, James chapter four, verse number one is where we'll begin reading this evening. The, th- the sermon title this week is a never-ending supply of grace. And more specifically, how we can access that never-ending supply. Verse number one, the Bible says in James chapter number four, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do ye think that the scripture saith in vain, The spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? Verse number 6 is actually our key verse. We'll read it again after we conclude our entire scripture passage. But I ask that you pay great attention to verse number 6. The Bible says, But he giveth more grace... Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness." Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. Now, draw your attention once again to verse number 6. Let's read it together. The Bible says, But He giveth more grace, wherefore He saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. You understand, Christian, God is never short on supply for the Christian life. And I don't really care what supply we talk about. No resources God ever run short of save laborers in the harvest field. You see, God has the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the hills they're standing on. And if it wasn't for him, the grass wouldn't grow. There would be no cows. You see, God's never run short on supply. Specifically in this idea of grace, God has more grace where the last grace came from. He never runs short. In thinking of this thought, I was reminded of the two stories of widows in the life of Elijah and Elisha. You see, the stories are quite similar, but there are a few distinguishing characteristics. Elijah was called to go to a lady by the, a, 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 lady, a widow of the town of Zarephath. Once he got there, the Lord said he had commanded that widow to take care of Elijah. Well, somebody should have probably told the widow because she didn't apparently get that message. When Elijah shows up, Uh, He he looks at her and says, what I need you to do is I need you to get me some water. And so she, without hesitation, begins to serve the great prophet Elijah. In that manner, she goes and begins to retrieve him water. On her way, Elijah says to her, but I need you to do more than that. I need you to make me a a cake. Now this is a, a problem. Because at this point, at least we suppose, she was not running short on water just due to the lack of the Bible's... uh, uh, the Bible's silent on the matter of a lack of water and the fact that she readily goes to get it. But now he's asking for something altogether different. He's asking for a meal. And she says, "But, but Elijah, you don't understand. I am literally picking up two sticks, just two sticks, I'm going to go home. I'm going to prepare the very small amount of meal that I have and the small little bit of remaining oil that I have. I'm going to take it out of the cruise and I'm going to use these sticks to make a cake for me and my son so that we might eat, and she says this, and die. Now she was in a very perilous situation and she understood how serious it was. This great prophet did not bring her any source of hope Really, it was more of a problem that he was there. She didn't say anything about that, but she serves the prophet up until a point. And Elijah says, don't you worry about that. God will take care of all that. What I need you to do is I need you to go home and I need you to make me a cake. And I want you to prepare me food before you prepare food for you or your son And I want you to know that the cruise of oil will not fail and the meal will not fail either. You'll have plenty until the drought ends. Now, this doesn't make any sense. Logically speaking, if she's only got a little bit left in her cruise and and she's only got a little bit of meal or food there, it makes no sense that that it might enable or or, or last throughout the entire drought. But that's what Elijah says. And, And you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that's exactly what happened. Her crews never failed. She never ran out of meal. God wasn't lacking supply for her. And see, in the other story with the widow, it's a widow and it's Elisha this time. And in fact, the Bible says about this woman that she was a, a wife of one of the sons of the prophets. And we realize, just based upon reading the passage, that this was a good man that had died and left his wife alone with her two sons. A good man. In fact, when she approaches Elisha, she says, You know that your servant, my husband, serve the Lord with fear. So Elisha says, Okay, what can I do for you? She said, well, the, the, the debt collectors come to my home and he's ready to take my two sons as payment and he's going to turn them into bond slaves as payment for, for our, our dues and, and, and we just don't know what we're going to do. And, and Elisha says, okay, okay, I've got an idea. What do you have in your home? And, and her answer is so hopeless. She says, nothing. Save one pot of oil. That's it. Nothing. She had probably already been to the pawn shop and uh, pawned all of her husband's goods. She had probably done every bit of extra work. She had worked all the overtime she could. And now her last resort is approaching the great prophet Elisha. And she says, but you don't understand, Elisha. Things aren't looking good. What can you do for me to help? And Elisha says, what do you have? Just one pot. It's not very much. And Elisha then instructs her together every pot that she can all around town could you imagine what that conversation was like she knocked on the door do you have any pot (laughs) I'm glad you guys caught that all around town she goes knocking on doors do you have any vessels that I can have they're no good you've already used them all any empty vessel that you have I want to take it to my house She grabs all of them that she can find, her two sons with her. She goes in the house following the instructions of the great prophet Elijah, locks the door behind her, and she says, I'm going to start pouring oil into every empty vessel. And when a vessel fills up, sons, I need you to bring me another one. And she fills up vessel after vessel after vessel after vessel until they're out of vessels. But uh, while they were out of vessels, they never ran out of oil. You see, God's never short on supply. I realize we're in the Old Testament here, and I realize we're talking about oil, but I want you to know that the principle in those widows' lives is the exact same principle in our life. Every day we must come to God with a recognition of our weaknesses and His strengths. Every day we must come to God and understand that if apart from His grace, we will not be able to live for Him like we should today. Every day. And if we will come to him in recognition of that one fact, he says, oh, your vessels will never go dry. The crews will never fail. There will always be grace. In fact, verse number six, and he giveth more grace. Let me ask you, what would keep any Christian from accessing this never-ending supply Of grace. What is it that would prevent us from from actually coming to God and saying, God, I need it. You're offering it, and so I need it. Well, that's what we're going to talk about this evening. Three reasons why we fail to access the never ending supply of God's grace. Number one, we fail to acquire the delight of grace. In other words, we fail to lay claim on what God has for us. God says, here it is. But just like every gift you've ever received in your life, you must claim it. Just like every check that's ever been written to you, it has your name on it. It's for your bank account. But until you take that check, endorse that check, and put it in the bank, guess what? The check is no, of no value. Why in the world would a Christian not get the daily provision of God's grace for their life? I'll tell you why. Because they just simply don't lay claim to it. God's not holding it back. God's not trying to make you live this life on your own. We just do not acquire the delight of grace. Well, there's two main reasons we find in our passage tonight. Number one, it's because we enter our daily pursuits without requesting provision notice verse number two we, we start on tasks and we just don't request for the supply of god 's grace number two verse number two the Bible says ye lust and have not ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain ye fight and war yet ye have not say these next words with me out loud because ye ask not well why do we not have this daily supply of grace why does the Christian life oftentimes feel like a war that we're not winning. How come so many Christians find themselves with sin that is overwhelming them when we were called to be victorious and we were called conquerors through him that loved us? Why do we have that power and that ability? Why is the word of God mighty to the pulling down of strongholds in our life? Why does the Bible speak of this Christian that is just laden with power from on high and yet we live such powerless lives? I'll tell you why, because we don't ask God for it. We just simply do not ask Him for it. You say, Brother Andrew, that's not true. Well, then you're calling Scripture a liar, because Scripture literally says, Ye have not, because ye ask not. Can you imagine why God, being all-sovereign, all-powerful, willing to help us. Of sorts, he's handed us a blank check and said, you just put whatever you need on there and I will help you with it. And yet we fail to go to him and ask for it. Martin Luther said it like this, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Why would we not pray and ask for God's help? Well, there's only three reasons that I can think of, okay? These are very, very plain Jane Number one, it is an admission of our feeble confidence in God's power. In other words, you can say it like this. We don't believe He can do it. It's an admission in how small our paradigm is of how big He is. We just, uh, he's, He probably can't handle the big problems in my life. The Bible sings a different song. In fact, Luke chapter 1, verse 37, Jesus is talking and he says, For with God, nothing is impossible. So surely the reason we don't pray, it cannot be because we, we just don't believe God is powerful enough. So if it's not that we have a feeble confidence in God's power, maybe it is an admission of our estimation of God's goodness. Maybe we believe He's capable of it, but maybe we just don't believe He's good enough to do it for us. Because if He says, you can have it. If He says, you have not because you ask not. If He's powerful enough, we must then just think He's not good enough to us individually to give us what He's promising to give us. We either believe that He's not all-powerful, We either believe that He's not all good or it is an admission of our dependence on God's presence. In other words, we don't really need Him. It's an admission that we believe we're okay without Him. You see, it's we don't believe we need it. But the Bible says in John chapter 15, For without me ye can do nothing. So where does this put us? Uh, Say amen if you believe God is powerful enough to handle any problem in your life. Say amen if you believe God is good enough, not to the world, but to you individually, to hear your prayer and answer your prayer and answer in ways that you could never imagine. Say amen if you believe that. Now say amen if you believe that you need God every day of your life. So why would we not pray? I can think of no reason. The number one reason that we do not get our daily provision of God's never-ending supply of grace is because we enter into our daily routine without requesting supply from Him. But number two, it is because we enter pursuits without the right purpose. Verse number two says this, Ye have not because ye ask not. And then the flip side of that coin is this. Ye ask, so some of you are asking, but you receive not because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. So there's Christians that aren't asking, but there is a a segment of Christians that are asking. They're simply not receiving because they're asking for all the wrong things. If you're praying right now for something in your life that God needs to do for you, have you asked yourself why? And what God might receive from you receiving that thing? You see, we often ask for things like, pay raises, or promotions, or or popularities, or all sorts of things. But have we ever asked, if God were to give this to me, how could I then be a blessing to others, or how could God use this in my life to glorify Himself? When I was just a young child, my I asked Dad for a bass boat, and he said, well, have you prayed about it? That was his way of saying, I'm too cheap to buy you one. So I decided to start praying about it, and I wanted a blue bass boat with sparkles, okay? And I needed the sparkles, and I know it sounds girly that there would be sparkles on a bass boat, but in fishing, everything has sparkles. Your lures, everything has sparkles. Your rods and reels, man, everything has sparkles, and it's manly because it's fishing, okay? Okay? And I wanted a blue bass boat. But I never asked myself, what glory could God get out of this? And while I was just a small child and I didn't understand all there is to know about God or prayer, really a lot of our prayers, we never ask that question. God, if you give me that promotion, God, if you give me that, that pay raise, how can I then glorify you with what I'm requesting? Because God says some of the things you're asking for, you're just going to burn them up on your lust. It's not going to be good for you and it's not going to glorify me. So why would I give it to you? That's what God says. I I tried to figure out a way today to illustrate this principle. And believe me, I was struggling. I didn't know and I had, I, I study and I have my computer screen split, and I have the internet right here of past sermons that dad has preached right here, and uh, I have the Bible right here, and it was funny, I was on BibleGateway.com to the left, and I had my Bible up right here, and I'm trying to study and trying to figure out how I'm going to teach this, and I just sat back, and I'm like, now nah, I, I need an illustration to, to, to acknowledge or, or to, to somehow explain this principle, and it hit me. At the bottom of BibleGateway.com was this internet banner. A banner is an advertisement that you can click on and be redirected to a, a vendor's site. This was the banner. This is what it said. On BibleGateway.com you need these sheets. God. Amen. You need these sheets. It was an advertisement for Brooklyn and Sheets. The, the, I, I Right underneath it, in a smaller italic print, it said this. The luxury bed sheets that won't cost you a fortune. <laughs> and I was intrigued. Because I'm trying to think of an illustration on, on going to God for things that we need... And here's a banner that says, you need sheets. And so I said to myself, I need to start praying for some bed sheets. (laughs) If I need these sheets. So I click on the link. It takes me to the website. Well, i tell you what. They have a first-class website. Everything looks super nice. Testimonials. I think they had like a 4.7 out of 5-star review. Man, it was impressive. The sheets looked nice. They had a professional photographer taking photos. And and I clicked on the, the prices ad at the, 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 uh, the top, the tab that took me to the prices page. And I, I didn't have anything, so I needed to start from the very bottom. I needed the flat sheet. And I needed the the uh, 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 stretchy sheet that nobody knows how to fold. And, and uh, I needed the big... Big comforter. And so I get all this. I needed the pillows and I needed the, the cases. And so I get it all. And guess what it totaled out to be? Now, remember, these are affordable sheets. Luxury, but affordable. $660 later, which is awfully close to the mark of the beast, $660 later, I can have luxury sheets for an affordable price. And I said to myself, well, I've got to get them because I need them. Yeah. How foolish. How foolish it is. But oftentimes, that's the way we view wants and needs, isn't it? Yeah. Our wants kind of get in this gray area. They begin to kind of come over into our needs. And and, and that's not the way life should be. We oftentimes want to pray for our wants more than we do our needs. God says, You just want that to waste it upon your lust. And that's one reason you don't have what you're asking for. You see, the first reason we don't get our daily provision of God's never ending supply of grace is this we fail to acquire the delight of grace. We just fail to lay claim on what God has to offer us. Number two, we fail to arrange our desire for grace. We we fail to actually say grace is a priority in my life. You see, we have all sorts of pursuits, and we're man. We of all people are so busy. Have you ever noticed that everybody's busy? You just try scheduling one event, and you'll find out how busy everybody is. Yeah. Man, everybody's busy, and and justifiably so. I mean, we're running all sorts of different places. Kids got ball games, and we got to go eat, and we got, you know, all these meetings and all this stuff. And so in this daily grind, it's difficult to prioritize grace at the top. And so we almost neglect to request its supply. Because man, we got to wake up. We got to get the kids cook breakfast, and then we got to get them to school, and then we got to go Pokemon in for a little bit. Mandy and Craig. <laughs> now we've just, but we are so busy. Sometimes we neglect to just sit back and say, you know what? Before I get going with this day, I need to put my request for God's grace at the very top. Amen. Verse number four. Notice this with me, if you will. How do we do it? Well, the Bible says, "...ye adulterers and adulteresses." Now, that is some strong terminology they're they're using there. If you remember, there was a group of Pharisees that brought a woman to the Lord, and and she was an adulteress caught in the very act, and they said, "...it is required of Moses' law that she be stoned. What do you say?" I mean, this was an accusation that was not to be taken lightly. And James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here, says this, Ye adulterers and adulteresses. Ye! (laughs) That's what the Bible says. Well, why would he use such strong terminology? Well, he actually goes on and he says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God. And so we have a contrast of relationships here, right? Right? What is the first relationship? Well, the only way that you can commit adultery is if you're what married. And then the verse goes on to say, friendship of the world. And so we would understand that while you are friends with your spouse, the Bible, in fact, this actual word here is the word the the word for uh, love and 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 friend here is phileo. It's the same word that we get the city Philadelphia's name from. It's brotherly love. We call that the city of brotherly love, right? And I was in L.A. this week. I think it's West Hollywood is the city of brotherly love. But, but uh, that's what Philadelphia is. And we call it that because this is the same word. The, the, the word love is phileo. And so there's a, a contrast of relationships. There is a marital relationship. Ye adulteresses and adulterers. A marital relationship. And a relationship of friends, of maybe brothers, or specifically in this context, companions. Now, do you see maybe who a Christian would actually belong to here? Oh, we're not married to the world. Who are we married to? Oh, friend, if you're, if you're saved and you're, you're part of the church, you're part of the bride of Christ. You see, the Bible tells the husbands to love their wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And then it goes on to say that he might present it unto himself a a, a spotless church, without spot or blemish. The Bible says that. And so, as a Christian part of the New Testament church, we are part of the bride of Christ. Amen? So how could we cheat on God? Someone said this a long time ago, and I, I don't know who it is, or I'd give them credit. Someone said, I'm afraid when Jesus comes back, He's going to find His church in bed with the world. What they're saying is, we belong in an exclusive marital relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But far too often, we're companions of the world. This would be like scheduling a bachelor party the night, the same night you get married. Right? You have friends. And and, and those friends may be good friends, which that's where the, the illustration maybe gets a little hazy. But but if you get married, I want you, I just dare you to try spending the night of your wedding with your buddies. But you don't understand, babe, there's a really good game on. She says, I don't care. Jesus could be coming back. We're going together. <laughs> you see, here he says, ye adulteresses and adulterers because we should be in a relationship with a heavenly Father and not an earthly companion. Amen. That's a problem. And so we begin to prioritize the wrong things in our life. What might a companion who is of this world value? Well, I'll tell you, every time I get around worldly people... The talk is just so carnal. It's about money. It's about things. Hey, Andrew, you got that new boat. You got that new reel. You got that new... And it's just, that's the ideology of the world. It's so materialistic. Don't tell me people in America don't have a religion. It's materialism. Their God is the next thing they can buy. And so, that's when I get around earthly, carnal people. That's what they talk about. But but when we when we begin to spend time around them, our our affections begin to mirror theirs. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? The Bible says the love of the it, it, you cannot love the world and love the Father. For all that is in the world is the lust of the eye, the pride of life, uh, the, the lust of the flesh. And if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. The Bible says. Now, it's not saying the love of the Father, the Father doesn't love you. It's saying you cannot love the Father like you should if you love the world. So what happens is we begin to maybe elevate the things that the world loves above what? Our daily provision of God's grace to enable us to live for Him. You see, what's more valuable to you, a new pickup or a daily supply of God's grace? What's more valuable than you, uh, uh, a, a new job with a higher pay raise or raising your kids in God's grace? What's more valuable to you? Because when we spend time with carnality, generally our mindset becomes carnal. When we spend time with heavenly relationships, focusing on our relationship with God, our mindset, our goals, our aspirations become more heavenly. Amen. We stop focusing on the things that are here. We prioritize earthly relationships over heavenly relationships. We prioritize the temporary more than the eternal. Verse number five. Do ye think that the scripture saith in vain the Spirit dwelleth in us, lusteth. To envy? That's a difficult word to understand, or a verse to understand, but we'll try to understand it together. Someone said, living in the light of eternity changes our priorities. Amen. When we began to focus on the eternal, things down here just do not matter quite so much. The verse uses the word lust. In fact, this chapter uses the word lust f- uh, four different times. Once in chapter 1 we find fightings and wars come from lusts that war in your members. In chapter number 4 verse 2 says to lust is, is the desire to have. Ye lust and have not. And that ye, des- ye kill and desire to have. In verse number 3 when you pray you ask for things that you may consume it upon your lust. You see the chapter actually has a lot to do with our lusts. Verse number 5 the Bible says Do ye think that the scripture saith in vain, The spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? The passage strongly deals with a sinful motivation that is lust. What is lust? Desiring to have something to waste it upon your flesh. Wrongly desiring for something for the sake of self-gratification. So the passage deals with lust wrongly desiring to have something for the purpose of self-gratification. And now if we're going to understand that the passage deals with lust, and I think we all know what lust means now, it actually says this, the spirit that dwelleth in us, the other difficult part of the verse. Now, the Bible refers to three spirit, uh, to a spirit or the spirit, three primary different ways, okay? Number one, it speaks of a spirit of an attitude, okay? The Bible says about Daniel... He was preferred above all the princes and the governors. Why? Because an excellent spirit was found in him. Now, what that means is he had a great attitude about himself. He was already gifted, he was already talented, and he was just a good guy to be around. And I think we need more Christians like that, to be honest with you. And I don't think that's what this passage is talking about. The second way that this passage, or that the Bible uses the spirit, is obviously in reference to the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit. Most times when the Bible speaks of the Holy Spirit, the word is capitalized. There's very little doubt what that word is. The Holy Spirit. That's why the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Now I don't think that's the spirit this is talking about because it's a little s and it's not talking about attitude. So what is it talking about? Well, it's speaking about the third way that the Bible commonly refers to a spirit, and that is the spirit that is within man. See, the Bible says in First Thessalonians 5, verse 23, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a spirit that is in man. In fact, the Bible separates the spirit that is in man from the spirit that is of God. The Bible says, Romans chapter 8, verse 16, the spirit, capital S, so the Holy Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So I know we're getting a lot of Bible verses and I know we're kind of dealing with a lot of uh, learning here, but, but basically all we're saying is the verse is referencing the spirit that is within every man. Now, not a reformed spirit, just the normal spirit that is within every man. And it says, this spirit lusteth to envy. So the, the spirit that is in every man, it desires, lusts to envy. What is it saying? Well, what in terms, or in context of the verse, what it's saying is, it lusts to envy after all things carnal. Well, it, It's natural for our spirit that is within man to desire something that is not of God. Even if you're saved, it doesn't matter. Uh, We fight a daily battle of our flesh. And so our spirit naturally lends itself to materialism and all those sorts of things. Let me put it to you like this. I've mentioned several times before that I have animals that get in my trash. Amen? I've mentioned it several times. It's the most frustrating thing ever. Uh, I have coons that get in my trash. I have possums that get in my trash. One less as of a week ago. But we have several. I had house cats getting in my trash. I have foxes getting in my trash. Amy gets in there. Bailey gets in there sometimes. We just have so many things getting in my trash. It's terribly frustrating. And the obvious question you should be asking is this. Why do you keep putting it outside? You see, that would make sense. Well, because trash makes my home smell bad. And every time I make the conscious decision to open that door and put my trash on my front porch, you know what I'm understanding? That those animals, it is their nature to get into my trash. Poor little possum the other night. I'm telling you what, I felt bad for that one because a coon had gotten in there twice before that same evening and I just shoot him off because I don't want to be mean. Poor little possum got the end of that stick. That was a bad deal for him. I understand it's in their nature. I get the fact that they're scavenging for food. But some part of me wishes that they would just go elsewhere. (laughs) that they would find someone else's trash to deal with. Or better yet, just don't eat nasty trash. That's what I would hope. You see, what, what the Bible's saying here is, it is our nature to crave carnality and carnal things. Amen. The Spirit lusteth to envy. So what's happening? Well, we're val- we're, we, we begin to value... The temporary carnal things because that's what we're around all the time. It's what we see on a daily basis. Man, just drive through town and see all the billboards or watch the commercials. Not some of them because you can't. Good gracious. Just, but our world has become so you've got to have this and make sure you're part of this. Man, I'll tell you what, I'm tired of buying $1,000 phones. Amen? Amen. Yeah. It's just, that's our world. And what the Bible is warning the Christian here to do is to not buy into what the world values, but buy into what God values. Get on the grace train instead of the stuff train. That's what the passage is saying. So what we must do is arrange our desire for grace. Prioritize it at the top. When you wake up tomorrow, don't check your emails first, but maybe go to God and say, God, before I check the emails, give me the grace to handle them correctly. Before you wake up, well, it'd be hard to do it before you wake up, but after you wake up, before you set out on your day, just prioritize your daily provision of God's grace more than everything else you've got going on. The world will wait, I promise. So, number one, we fail to acquire the delight of grace. Number two, we fail to arrange our desire for grace. Number three, we must close. We fail to admit our dire need for grace. The verse is actually very simple. Verse number six. But he giveth more grace. Boy, I need more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud but giveth grace unto the humble. You know what the proud Christian says? I've got it, God. No problem. I handled yesterday on my own. I'll handle today on my own. And man, I just think that I can handle tomorrow on my own. Boy, that's a prideful Christian. A humble Christian says, Lord, you've blessed me with wisdom. Lord, you've blessed me with experiences. Lord, you've blessed me with a uh, uh, counselors, and you've blessed me with your word, you've blessed me with your Holy Spirit to guide me throughout each day, and with all of those blessings, I recognize my inability to follow you wholly, apart from your grace. What we do is we like to go back through our memory bank and say, well, how did I handle this situation the last time? But we never actually ask God for grace to handle the situation. We must admit our dire need for grace. Three reasons, and we'll hurry through them. Number one, it aids, enabling us to defeat our enemy. Verse number seven, the Bible says, If you will be humble, and God will give this grace, you can submit yourselves, therefore, to God, and resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So it enables enables us to defeat our enemy. Satan is far more powerful than you. He's far smarter than you. He's a lot more experienced than you. He's been around for a pretty good while. Satan has all power in this earth. He has a dominion over this earth. And yet we take him on daily in our own strength. Now that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? And if we'll ask God for grace, God says, I'll give you the grace and you can submit to me and resist your enemy." it actually is a, there's a mirror passage of this in 1st Peter chapter 5 verse 6 humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time you see humility in there and then it says casting all your cares upon him for he careth for your souls those are all good verses right boy i love those two verses and then verse number 7 or verse number 8 says this be sober be vigilant For your adversary, the devil, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Humility is in 1 Peter, just like it is here in James. Submitting ourselves to God and casting our cares on him is in 1 Peter, just like it is in James. And then the the old honorary serpent, the devil, is there too. And in both verses, when you submit to God and and you receive grace from God, you have power to defeat the devil. That's pretty good. So what do we do? We we must admit that we need God's grace to, number one, defeat our enemy. Number two, it aids in drawing us closer to God. I don't know about you, but I want to be closer to God tomorrow than I was today. I want to to know more about Him tomorrow than I do today. I want tomorrow, when I read my Bible, another thing hit me like, and Noah found grace in the eyes of God. I, I want those. I need those moments in my life. I need that assurance that God is with me each and every day. And when I read His Word, I need Him to show me how to walk throughout this life. I need that. And grace is how we draw closer to God. Verse number 8. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh unto you. If you can't get excited about that, Christian, you can't get excited. There's a story in the Bible about the prodigal son. It's actually a quite sad story, but it ends pretty well. The prodigal son, you know the story. He goes to his father and he demands his portion of his inheritance right then and there. The Bible says he hung around for just a little bit. Then he parted, split the way, and he went off into a far country and wasted his substance on riotous living. Okay, Y'all know the story. And what's sad is when he runs out of his inheritance, he's now flat broke. The Bible says that instead of going home, he joins himself to a citizen of that country. That's What what he did was he tried to fix the problem apart from coming back to the Father. Isn't that what we oftentimes do? He goes to the far country. Now, what job does he acquire? Well, he's got a good one. He's chilling with the hogs, Right? And he's eating the husks. He would have feigned to fill this belly with the husks that the hogs ate. Rough life. And then the Bible says, and he came to himself, which is one of the most wonderful passages in all the Bible. And sometimes, you know what? God says, it's about time you come to yourself. Come to yourself and then go to God. That's kind of the idea behind the passage. And then he came to himself and he asked himself just a series of questions. How many of my father's hired servants have food to eat? Just a just a, a, a plenty of food to eat. And I'm sitting here in this hog pit. This is crazy. And he says, I will arise and I will go to my father and I will say, I am no more worthy to be called your son. Now he's, all he's wanting is to be placed among the servants. And the Bible says he sets out on his journey. And boy, this gets good right here. And the father seeing him afar off. He didn't make him walk the mile of shame. What did the father do? He leaves the porch... Goes and greets the son, lays his arms around his son, kisses him on the neck, and says, Welcome home, my son. Kill the fatted Gap, for my son, which is gone, has now come home. Boy, that is a good Bible story, if you ask me. And what's even more amazing about that story is it plays out every day in the life of Christians that will choose to draw nigh to their God. God doesn't ask you to span mountains, God doesn't ask you to to, to, to just forge rivers and seas, you know what God asks you to do? One step. You draw an eye unto me, I will draw an eye unto you. You know what grace does in your life? Well, grace enables you to take your first step. I don't care how far you are from God right now, God says there is no distance too great. You just turn around, step towards me, and I'll meet you there. That speaks worlds to me. Grace enables us to defeat our enemy. It enables us to draw closer to our God. And it aids in helping us determine to live a Christ-honoring life. Verse number 8. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Double-minded speaks of seeking two... Goals at the same time, distracted, not able to pursue one fully or or entirely. You're just thinking about this sometimes, thinking about this sometimes, and you cannot fully commit to one path or another. And it's saying when you ask for your daily supply of grace, it will help you live the life that you know you ought to live for God. Too many Christians sit here with no grace and so they sit here with no Christ honoring life. Titus chapter 2 verse number 11 says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Are you you glad that the grace of God appeared to you? Amen. Amen. The grace of God hath appeared to all men. Think of your favorite teacher in school. The, the, The teacher that you had that Just you loved. Think of maybe one particular lesson that teacher taught you. Maybe it was a lesson on character. Maybe it was a lesson on on, uh, uh, being a good student. Or maybe I I had one by the name of Miss Webb. She was just a sweetheart. I loved her to death. I I didn't really like any subject in school besides girls and sports, okay? So those were my two favorite subjects, and lunch was a close third. But after that, Miss Webb inspired me. Now, I didn't like art at all. It's kind of frilly and a little sparkly at times, and this is not fishing, okay? (laughs) And yet, I became passionate about this one picture that I was painting. I'm no artist, but she inspired me. I remember that. Titus chapter 2 says the grace of God that appeareth, hath appeared unto all men. And it says this. It's key lesson. It stands in front of you and its main reason is this. Teaching us. That denying ungodliness, we should live soberly in this present world. We should live soberly and righteously and godly, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know what the great teacher of grace ought to teach you today? It ought to teach you that there's a Savior coming back and He's worth living for. The great lesson that grace teaches us is that God is good, so His children ought to resemble that. That's the great lesson of grace. And it motivates us to live for Him. Now speaking of Ms. Webb, she had a son. His name was Brazos. Now Brazos is crazy. Brazos is a little off his rocker to be honest with you. He's a good friend of mine. I still talk to him often. Brazos is a weird guy. My wife struggles to understand him sometimes. I think he's on Facebook. Not a good follow, but my mom, my mom follows him. And he, anyway, he's, he's just a good guy, and I like him. Me and Brazos one day, we hunting buddies. We got drawn in a hunt he told me to put in for. Is the Lake Proctor Duck Hunt. Okay, The Lake Proctor Duck Hunt. I had never hunted Lake Proctor, neither had he. We just only heard about it. We were both into duck hunting, so we drew a permit for it, and now we decided to go. We pulled up the map that told us where we could access the lake, and and so we show up before the sun rises, we've got our decoys on our back, we knew we were going to be hunting large groups of ducks, so we were both each carrying two dozen decoys apiece, okay? We have them on our backs, we've got our shotguns, and if you've never been duck hunting, you're in neoprene waders, most of the time they're insulated, but even if they're not insulated, neoprene doesn't let water in. So you know what else it doesn't let out? Sweat. Okay, you're, you're smoking hot in these things. So me and Brazos, like the gung-ho hunters that we were, we set off on the trail. We get 20 yards into the trail and we realize there is no trail anymore. It is the thickest woods I have ever walked through in my entire life. There is only animal trails, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but animals are a great deal shorter than we are. Even a deer only comes up to maybe waist high on me, and so all of the trails that are formed are low to the ground, the, 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 the leaves and the, the branches and all that, they actually come over the trail to form an arc of some kind, and we are busting through brush the entire way. This was really before Google Maps came out and before you could measure distances. We had no clue how far it was to the lake. We just saw the lake and we started walking. Four and a half miles later, and two hours after the ducks have flown, we arrive at the lake. It was the most awful walking that I've ever done in my life. Brazos and I were both in probably the best shape of our lives because we were playing football at the time and we were running sprints. We we were in good shape. And guess what? Here's here's the lame-brainedness of us. We did not pack a drop of water. Nothing to drink. We walked four and a half miles. I think the temperature that day was somewhere high 60s, low 70s. So it was actually a pretty day. But when you get to walking, man, we just started sweating. And we get to the lake, I promise you, this is what we did. We drug one branch, of just a broken off limb from a tree, drug one branch, set it on the bank, which was far drier than we'd ever, you know, the lake was really dry, so we set that branch there, we lay down behind it using our decoys as a backrest, because we, we knew we weren't going to shoot any ducks, we did not even throw a decoy out, and we just laid there just dreading the walk back to the truck. We sat there for about two hours. We finally talk ourselves into going. Now I'm talking about we start walking at about 11 o'clock. We have no drink. We had nothing to eat that morning. We are both starving and we are both thirsting to death. We start the trick back. We get in this little creek bottom and the creek bottom just winds back and forth, back and forth. And we would have rather walked double the distance than actually go through the brush that we came through the first time. So we're just winding back and forth following this creek bottom. We get about a quarter mile to the truck. And at this point, it was just kind of every man for himself. Me and Brazus weren't talking. Our mouths were too dry. We were so exhausted. We've got these decoys on. we got the shotguns on. And I remember going down in this dip, a pretty steep uh, bank. We go down and right back up. And I, I, I hear a truck. I actually see the dust rising on the road from the truck. So, you know, I'm not turning back now, you know. I'm, I'm almost there. So I walk to the, the road I come out maybe another half mile from the pickup truck. I walk down the road, which is okay. I'd have walked thousands of miles on that road, man. I'd have Forrest Gumped it if I needed to, because that was a lot of walking and some really tough stuff. So I get on that road. I finally get to the truck, and I look around, and I say, Huh, where's Brazos? I sat at the truck for 20 minutes. No Brazos. Had no clue where he was. I thought maybe, he's a better woodsman than I am. I mean, he doesn't get lost. I didn't know what had happened to him. So the only thing I could think to do was, I was not going back in there. I mean, (laughs) them coyotes could have ate him for all I cared. I wasn't going back in there. So I just sit at my truck and I begin to honk the horn. Honk, 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 honk. Just for sustained minutes at a time, hoping he will hear this. Here in about another 30 minutes or so, I see Brazos walking up. Now, this is almost an hour after I've been to the truck, and Brazos said, I said, where have you been? He goes, I don't know. And I said, what? He goes, I woke up to the sound of a horn honking. (laughs) What I didn't realize was when we went down in that ditch, we were so dehydrated Brazos got down started to go up and just didn't he fainted passed out laying in the bottom of that creek bed that was a pretty serious deal I was just happy I was the one in the air conditioning we hop in the truck and we begin to recount the misery that our duck hunt was and we're driving down the road and we see this steakhouse off to the right And I cannot tell you how good a sweet tea and the biggest hunk of cow that they had sounded at that time. What would you think if I told you we drove right past it? Well, you'd say, you're stupid. I can tell you the end of the story. We did stop in there. We drank them dry (laughs) and ate one of the best steaks that I've ever tasted in my life. But what if I'd have passed it? We're both thirsting to death. We're both hungry as can be. Why would you not go to the supply when it's there? Christian, if you're thirsting, go to God. He's got the supply. If you're hungry, go to God. He's full of supply. Go to God tomorrow when you wake up. Do not dare slap God in the face and declare your independence by saying, I don't need you today. Wake up tomorrow and humbly say to God, God, apart from you today, I will not live for you the way that I know I should. Do not neglect to go to God's never-ending supply of daily grace.